Welcome to Making Chips. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. Today, I'm your host, Nick Golner, and I'm joined by the voice of middle-aged manufacturing, Jim Carr and Jason Zenger. Please don't put me in the same category as him. Well, I'm there. You're there. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. Yep. No, you, we are in different <laughs> realms of not even close. You're, you're not looking at retiring, I have a two-year-old right? child. Yes. So, and you have you're, like post-college children. Hang on. So I'm Googling. I've got, no. I've got adult children. I'm Googling are, what is middle-aged. Long emancipated. I'm still changing from, diapers, baby. God, you are. <laughs> what is middle-aged? Let's see what Google yeah, says. Yeah, let's see what Google says. A person aged about 45 to 65. I'm not. No, you're not. But I'm you're not pretty, there yet. You're pretty darn yeah, close. But my goal is actually to live to be 125. Oh, God. Because so, I want to live through an entire millennium. Okay, I'm, so you'd I have got to be a thousand to years old then? No, or no, not an entire millennium. <laughs> an entire <laughs> Let's do some century. There you go. Entire century. So, yeah. That's so 1,025 years old. That's not my old. wish. <laughs> so the the oranges of the manufacturing movement, yeah, right? That's yeah. Right. If you don't if you don't know what Jim's talking about, please listen to episode two hundred thirty seven. It's yeah. one of my favorites, and I think probably one of Jim and Nick's favorites pretty, as well. This that, is going to be a great ranks. episode too. That ranks. But if you don't get the orange comment, go back and listen to that episode right now. How many of the people listening do you think are oranges? I have no idea. Eighty percent. I hope it's less. I just made that up. Yeah, you guys, no don't don't throw out num- the media does enough of a job of throwing out numbers that they don't want to talk about. Let's not start doing it on fake making news. chips. <laughs> yeah. Or we're just calling you out as fake news, Nick. <laughs> so, guys, I actually don't mind the drive to Chicago and the traffic's not that bad. No, but. I am chomping at the bit to be able to actually travel and see real customers instead of just traveling to record podcasts with you guys. I will tell you, though, that in the last few days, I've had salesmen into my facility. And we're the only thing we're doing is we're social distancing. We're about this far Don't apart. tell our guest that. He'll be there with no, the no, box. No, yeah, but I'm going to be ready to take your yeah. spindle back no, to seriously. Detroit. <laughs> we, it's... it's the sales is back. I, I'm even got cold callers showing up at my front door. Yeah, my, again. my guys That's are getting more doors. Cold callers. Yeah. yeah. Is it cold calling dead? I don't think so. There's it's called a co- it's called a COVID call. It's back. <laughs> COVID call. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, my guys are getting into more doors than they were. Yeah. But it's still kind of like, they're actually having like sales meetings in parking lots. Wow. We know, yeah. Nick, we wow. do that all the time. So like, as we've talked about on the show, one of our pillars is continuous improvement with our clients. And we're having to navigate that in parking lots, in video, all of the above, because we still have customers that expect that from us. And some of them don't want us inside their shop. So the guy comes out in the parking lot, shows us the edge of the insert, and we're like, you know, make recommendations, yada, yada. You're, and, you're bringing you know, out the metrics on the whiteboard out to the parking lot and saying- You got to do what you got to do. You got to yeah. improvise. You got to be flexible. You get it, right? If you have, you just got to improvise during yeah. these times. Yeah. Well, speaking of continuous improvement- Yes. We start every episode with something positive. We do. So what's improving at Car Machine and Tool, Jim? Well, I'm setting up the AS9100 audit right now. It's been- an absolute nightmare trying to get an auditor in. We've rescheduled like four times since since mid March when the pandemic came over yeah. us. And now that I so you do you already have the certification? We're ISO nine thousand one. Right. We're going for AS ninety one hundred. Okay, we're compliant with that certification and that credentialing, but you but just don't have the stamp. Of we approval. don't have the stamp, but we gotcha. can't get an auditor in to audit us because because of COVID. But now, what I'm understanding is 
I can do a stage one audit, my initial audit, I can have it done virtually. So that's going to help us a lot. We're a paperless company. So all we have to do is do a share screen and then we can show So what's everything. harder to achieve, the ISO certification or the AS9100? I think AS, it's an aerospace right. that's what I, thought you were so, say. I, I know what you're talking about, about the certifications, because yeah. my, my wife's company is minority and woman WBE, and she said it was a nightmare to try to like go through her recertification process just because people working from home, not being able to come out to the facility because they have to like go to the facility and audit and same like like your ISO certification and just it's just things are so strange. Our auditor was going to come from Canada. They closed the border from Canada. You can't if you live in Canada, you can't even come into the United States. So tell me, so you said you're paperless and it makes it easier for you to achieve these certifications. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure you have an ERP that helps you out with that. I do. And, you know, it's no coincidence, no live, talked about it on the show many times, is, you know, we are using ProShop in, in our shop. We've used it for two years. And they're it's a great been, sponsor of making chips. They are a great sponsor of making chips. And not only that, it has really changed my business. We knew we needed a new ERP system years ago when my son came into the business. He's like, Dad, what we're using is ancient. We need something that's really full spectrum that can we can really take it to the next level. And it has. It really has. I'm not lying because they're a great sponsor. It really has been changed our business. I remember talking to Paul and he's like, look, we put the requirements to achieve these certifications. We build that into our software. It, it's there, man. It's right there. So all we have to do is it's housed and controlled from the ERP system, did all you, the QMS. Did you ever think if somebody were to say to you 10 years ago that you would be a paperless machine shop, did you ever think that would no, be possible? No. What do you mean replace prints? I mean, your dad your dad would lose his mind. He would, you know? Well, it's funny. Hey, he's I never going to have a five-axis machine either. No, right, right, right <laughs> and I do. But it, I was just telling Ian be, when we got here today to MXD, we still been saving the prints, the paper prints for decades. I mean, I got a file cabinet full of them for 25 years or longer. And I've been collecting all these paper prints. And I said to Ryan just last Saturday, I said, you know what? Burn them. It's time to cross over. Dude, you should videotape. You guys bring like a metal can out to your parking lot and burn them. Yeah. Burn too, the prints. It's too late. I took about 15 pounds of paper and I just dumped it right in the recycling bin and then told my guys at our next week's production meeting, no more prints. Do not write anything relevant. We're not going to pull that paper print out of the file next right, time. Just put it in. Put it into ProShop. Love it. That information is there and we don't need to go back to a paper print anymore. Your old school machinists are going to have a hard time with that. No, gym. I think they're fine. I think they're yeah. good. Yep. Nope. We're good. We're good. I, guess, was, I guess the pro shop system makes it, it easy was, to do it. It was another five pounds, 10 pounds of weight off my back by freeing myself from that paper print. Anyway. All right, guys, we have manufacturing news every episode. We do. What's I, going on? I pulled a really good survey for this one. Tell me. So this is from Cutting Tool Engineering. They we surveyed these people. all yeah. these different manufacturers. We're, we're always talking about what's up, what's down with the economy. And well, it actually says it's a survey from the NTMA and the PMA, and it was published in Cutting Tool Engineering. Management. Right. That's where I found it, but you're right. So good job, NTMA, for doing the survey. Good job, Cutting Tools Engineering, for publishing it for us. But here's some highlights from the survey. 86% of manufacturers report revenues lower than pre-COVID levels, including 51% reporting revenues down more than 25%. 57% of the respondents expect that revenues won't return to pre-COVID levels for at least six months to one year. 
47% of those surveyed report that they may be forced to furlough employees if revenues do not improve in the next 90 days. And lastly, as Congress works on more lending options, cash flow remains a concern as 79% of respondents said they would seek another PPP loan if it was available. So manufacturers don't expect recovery until 2021. I mean, we're starting to see signs of things kind of coming back, but as far as what this survey collects is people really think that we're just going to have to wait this year out, weather the storm, and hopefully 2021 is that year where we start. I, I think really that there's bounce. a lot of pockets here. So like some of the pockets are obviously oil and gas. Yep. That's a bad pocket. It's not uh, a good one. <laughs> auto, um, auto. Another pocket is going to be auto, aerospace. Mm-hmm. No, you know, aerospace is good. Aerospace is good. Jim? Yes. Okay, okay. Well, for Jim. For Jim it is. Okay. You know, it'd be good to hear from our audience if they're in aerospace and production levels are down. Jim's got some orders. I know I like <laughs> I know like military and firearms are, are very strong. I just got an order from Tesla yesterday, so Okay. There you uh, go. I know that's Tesla's not auto. Machines. They got their Model Y now. <laughs> they what? They've got their Model Y. Oh, now. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. So, all right, just if we were to take the survey, would you say that you expect things to bounce back already or would you expect it to be 2021 before you feel like we're really starting to see growth so what do you mean by bounce back do you mean like, like above 20 right now like just, numbers so our sales are down 20 to 30 percent right okay. now from where they should be and we're trudging along things are going good we're still getting opportunities we've got a couple real big ones that could be game changers but the activity the energy the quoting activity i don't feel like it's back to where it should be and i probably won't expect that till January. At least, yeah, no, I was going to say like at least the second quarter of well, next wow. year, but we'll you know, see. I, 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 you know, I don't have a crystal ball. I know we forget every four years, but the election season does usually kind of dip things a bit. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to, I, I said this in a previous episode, I want to fast forward through 2020 to a certain extent. I'm kind of joking, but you know, I think after the election, I'm hoping that things will get back in order. And you, Jim, we're doing really well. You're just can yeah, we're doing we're doing well. So good for you. We're doing well. I mean, we're down a little bit, but like nothing drastic or anything like that. So I'm pretty happy about that. So I want to stop us right here. I'm I'm looking at our guest. He's chomping at the bit to talk. So Nick, (laughs) can you introduce our guest? Let's get him on here, and I want to get his feedback on what we've been talking about. Let's do it. Absolutely. So our guest today started in 1998, working for a machine tool builder, and then in 2000 he went to work for the Pope Corporation. And the leading spindle manufacturer purchased by Setco in 2003. He's the proud owner of Motor City Spindle Repair, based out of the Motor City, Detroit, Michigan. They specialize in the remanufacturing of precision CNC spindles, found in machining centers, turning centers, and grinding machine tools. Welcome to the show, Ted Leginski. Good morning, Welcome, guys. Welcome, Ted. Tad, so you you want to give us some feedback on what we're talking about, right? Well, I was just interested in chiming in about you know what's going on in COVID, and you guys were talking about your companies and where you guys' sales are. I just ran our report, and we had a record first quarter. Wow! So congratulations, man. So so we did really well, but obviously COVID hit approximately mid March. So so that didn't consist of of much of. Of the first quarter, right. and, and our backlog was strong. But even after the second quarter, we're still we're still up sixteen percent. And in July, we actually broke our average. So so we're up sixteen seventeen percent for the year. But I, you know, to be honest with you, I, I am a little bit scared about about what's going on. And for us, it's it's all about consumer confidence. If people aren't confident that they're going to be selling their products, they're not going to be running their machines. If they're not running their machines, they're not breaking spindles. If they're not breaking spindles, they're not sending them to us. So. 
I am a little bit nervous about the bottom dropping out, but yeah. it, it hasn't happened. And well, yeah, because if we're not making chips, our spindles aren't breaking. And if you're not making chips, you're not making money. And if you don't have any show. money, you can't buy tooling or work holding or have your spindles repaired. But you can yeah. end the show, yeah. We, we say that at the end, man. Well, we just said it right now. Well, let we're me kind ask of breaking tradition here a little bit, Nick. About spindle repair. So one thought that went into my mind, and tell me if there's any truth to this. When things are super slow like this, does it get businesses to think, okay, well, now's the time to do the maintenance that we've been putting off? Absolutely. You know, historically, around the 4th of July, around Christmas shutdown are when we see some of our busiest times. So that absolutely happens. Also, I started the business in 2008. So in 2009, 2010, we saw one of the biggest economic shutdowns what do they call it? The of the entire recession. century, right? I yeah, absolutely. Since the, since the 20s and 30s, and, and, and it spiraled out of control until the, until the world wars. So that was difficult. But yeah, absolutely. We go up against the major OEMs that, that manufacture the largest machine tools in the world. So when they don't want to spend top dollar on those on those units or when they want to do more preventative maintenance, when they can afford to be down a few days or a week and they don't have to order something and do an exchange overnight to get back up and running, that's where we can help people. Yeah, and right now people have excess capacity because things are slow. So Ted, tell us your story that why are you in the manufacturing industry? Okay. Well, yeah, I, I thought you weren't, this was not your path that you thought you were going to go down, right? No, no. It's kind of funny. I, I went to Michigan State. I graduated. I was going to be a teacher. And that path just just didn't seem right for me. Uh, I had some friends that also went to Michigan State and were going to become teachers, but got into sales. And I saw an ad in the newspaper that said, competitive mind, individual wanted, sports-minded individual. So I got into insurance. That's and- you. That, I mean, yeah. when I hear competitive, sports-minded, you're at the top of the list. Absolutely. Anything competitive, I love. Uh, I love to win. you teacher? Uh, No, uh, I was going to teach history. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I I enjoyed it. I still do. But I loved the competitive nature of of sales. I loved the company that I that I worked for. They did great training. I think I think the hardest part of of their job selling life insurance, and it was whole life. So we were going door to door. I used to say, you know, I I didn't like wrestling old ladies uh, for their purses at the kitchen table. So I got out of that, and I went to work for my brother in law, who worked in the machine tool industry. Loved it. But they got pushed out by CNC machine tools mm-hmm. and went on monster.com, got into the spindle business, and I've been in the spindle business ever since. Awesome. So your brand is well known in the industry. You have a very active, engaged company. How did you create a culture that's like so pro-social media in an industry that usually looks at it with a pretty high degree of skepticism? I think it was it was trial and error. We just wanted to dip our toes in the water and see if we liked it. We wanted to see if we got a return on it. And we saw kind of an immediate return. And you can only work so many hours a day, work in the phones. You can only travel so much. I love traveling the country. I love seeing several different people in, in different states in a week. But you can only do so much during the day in that capacity. But mm-hmm. if you get social media working for you, that can tie into Google. That can help with Google rankings. It can help with SEO of, of all forms. You can get different spokes in the in the marketing wheel, if you will, all working for you at the same time. Yeah. And, I, and I've always enjoyed that. Being a salesman, now that I've been doing it since 98, so 22 years, I really don't like picking up the phone a lot. We joked about it earlier about cold calls. I really don't like calling people and bugging them. If I can get somebody who's calling me about a down machine or somebody who's who's not happy with the OEM that's that's selling them their machining centers, and that's where 99% of our business comes from, that's what I love. If somebody calls me up and says, hey, do you have experience about this? 
I love it. I love a hot lead. I love explaining who we are, what we do, how we do it, how we think we can help people. And because it's turned into so many hot leads that we get literally a half dozen of a day that directly produces revenue. Yeah, see, that was my next question. So you're you're very active, but one of the quotes my dad always says is like, let's not confuse effort with results. So that effort is, you said half dozen leads a day. Yes. People just that, see that can be, They probably convert, of those half dozen leads, how many of those convert to like a about? Sale. I'm so, not going to hold you to it. Because it's, it's an interesting metric. And I just, I'm just curious to see. I would say approximately, let's say we get five leads a day. I would say it's roughly 20%. Because out of that, good. One a day Out of that is number. not bad. Not yeah. bad. No, no, I would say we pick up one new customer every single day, every day of the week, every day of the year. That's fantastic. Obviously on the weekends, but we actually get our fair share of business leads on Saturdays and Sundays I'm as sure. well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people are, are scratching their heads going, how are we going to get this machine up and running? How are we going to save money? How are we going to cut costs? So, so a lot of people are reaching out over the weekends. And then well. like we talked about earlier, when factories are shut down, like the weekends or like third shift, that's when a lot of the maintenance happens. So, so Ted, everybody out there in Metalworking Nation is thinking to themselves, I want to be up 16%. I want to have close a new customer one a day. Let's just say I'm a new person who's working for you or just pick anybody that's recently started working for Motor City. How would you explain your marketing strategy to them? How would you explain the process that they need to go through in order to be successful? Because I would imagine that you're not just throwing somebody to the wolves. You you probably have a process that you've proven and kind of worked out over the years to be successful at the marketing that you do. We use a CRM where we, we, we put in all our, our customers and prospects and we hand out that information to different individuals. Brian Burns, who owns Motor City with myself, he and I, uh, <laughs> we, we, we have a lot of arguments over a couple different philosophies, but we got rid of protected territories. We don't believe in it. it. It doesn't lead to competitive, aggressive sales individuals, which you have to be in this industry and you have to be marketing yourselves in so many different ways. And if you're not using social media and if you're not using all the tools at your disposal, you're just not going to maximize your efforts. And if somebody like Lauren Liddell, who works for me out of Wisconsin, is getting leads out of California or Seattle or, or Texas or what have you, she has the ability and the right to work with those customers. Totally. So she, could, she could close that customer. She can get a commission or a bonus or however you, you pay your people off of that. And she might be seeing customers in Wisconsin, but California is okay for her to go after. A hundred percent. Wow. Okay. I, that's not no where prote- I thought you were headed. No protected So you don't do exclusive territories. No. I, I don't believe in them. I'm Brian Burns. I love who, it. He's my best friend. I've known him since third grade. We, we fight like cats and dogs. We went to college together, played sports together. He ended up meeting his wife at my wedding and ended up marrying her. So now we're brother-in-laws. Our kids are cousins. Oh, that's cool. Wow, that's it's a cool. crazy story. But he, he he lets me get my way a lot, but he he beat me over the head and he was finally right. He said, you, we, we got to get rid of this. We got to quit handing away all our accounts. Oh, but so this was his idea not to have protected care. 100% and I fought him on it and I fought him on a lot of things. But over the last couple of years, I'm looking at it and I'm going, this guy's right about a lot of stuff. And uh, it, it's pretty cool. Even in Detroit where we have several sales managers, if somebody sells something in Detroit that's a sales representative, we just picked somebody up that works out of Atlanta. They now have customers in Michigan and it works. I, I can go on and on about that. But, so, but what's the they pro- don't actually have to be present, right? They don't have to be like present in well, the especially shop. not now, Nick. I right. Mean, uh, they can't. COVID. So exactly. yeah, like so let's say let's use a hypothetical. Let's use Lauren. Lauren from Wisconsin finds somebody in Atlanta. Now what what's the process? So like she starts a conversation because of her 
outreach or maybe they came to her because of some, mm-hmm. some post or something like that. How, how does that like become Lauren's account and, and what would be the process for her in order for it to like, you know, close as a commission that she gets? Well, that receive? can materialize a lot of different ways. First off, to get into some specifics, we have more companies reach out directly to us versus us reaching out to them. And I think that's the recipe for success. So if somebody reaches out to Lauren or Ryan or Brian or myself, whoever generates that lead is going to get full commission. Now, if they're starting to talk to Lauren about a specific machining center, DMG, Mazak, whatever, a lot of these mill turns, right? They're high end. We can be talking about a $20,000, $30,000 repair. We can be talking about a one, two, $5 million machine. Some of the stuff we do for the U.S. government, what have you. I don't mean to, most of the stuff we work on is a half million, million dollars. I don't mean okay. to, to throw that out there, but some of the machines are a little bit higher end. If they get into the technical aspects and the technical capacity that they need help closing that sale, that's where Brian Burns and myself, the owners of Motor City, are going to heavily get involved with that. I love to sell. I love to talk. I love to talk machine tools. I love to help people. I love to educate them. I like to give them the the, the real facts of who we are, what we do, what our experience levels are so that I can get work in the door. And a lot of companies don't have that philosophy and I, I don't really understand it. All I'm looking for is ROI and TM, return on investment, time management. How do I get more work in the door, take care of more customers and maximize our sales dollars so that, so that we're growing, so that I can pay for better techs, better equipment, better facilities to take care of my customers and create a positive cycle and just keep it rolling. And every single year for the last 12 years, we've had that growth. So I'd say it's working. But Ted, what's the process that you tell your people to go through? So do you just tell them, make a post about something on LinkedIn on a daily basis, twice a day? Like what's what's the formula for success as it relates to, do they put up technical content? Do they put up more inspirational content? I mean, like what what is your strategy? You got to have some kind of strategy, right? Absolutely. So, so there's, there, there's a couple different strategies all in play. There's, there's short-term strategies, there's long-term strategies, but everything needs to be centered around lead generation. Everything needs to be centered around return on investment. So if you're looking to play the long game, and, and we've been doing this for several years, so I think we're doing a pretty good job. You got to get a following first and foremost. You got to get an audience. And in the machine tool industry, you're not necessarily going to get an audience of people, you know, maintenance managers, which is, or maintenance supervisors or engineers. These aren't the people that are on LinkedIn. They're not on Instagram. Uh, is that your target? YouTube. Is that your target audience? Ma- maintenance, maintenance supervisors, that is our number one target audience. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to get But, that but you don't feel that they're on LinkedIn. They are on LinkedIn, but getting to them can be tricky. Yeah. Okay. okay. So if you know how the logarithm works, which I don't know exactly how it works, right? But by doing trial and error and by tracking our results, tracking leads and tracking what we're doing, I do have a pretty good understanding based on results. Okay. Okay. So if I reach 100,000 people or a million people in posts, and we reach several million people a year, we just had a couple of posts on one day that reached over a half million people. Oh, wow. So let's, let's take a look at that one post. On that post that I sent out to a half million people, if it's very product specific, and it's reaching my target audience, it's going to generate leads to some extent, right? right. To some extent. To some extent. By people that comment and like. Right. Right. But a post that is more generic and more, let's say, positive and has a bigger reach to a bigger audience is going to get more likes and more comments. Therefore, it's going to mm. get distributed by the logarithm to more people. Therefore, although it's not my target audience that is necessarily liking it and commenting on it, It's making it go out to more people. Therefore, I'm reaching my target audience more. And most people do not understand that. But I've heard 
that a lot of the social media platforms punish you for being too vacuous on your posts. So when I'm po- when I'm posting for Car Machine, I try to make my posts extremely manufacturing centric. So LinkedIn recognizes that this is my industry, this is my target, this is what I'm this is the world that I live in and it's going to attract people from within the industry like all the people that try to connect with me. I would say 95% of the people that try to connect with me to make a new connection are from industry. And I believe that it is because of the algorithm within LinkedIn, because I'm so niche on my posts that it's creating. So you're thinking about it a little differently. Yeah, Should- so this is kind of interesting because I, I would say both of you have been successful on LinkedIn, but you're kind of taking opposite approaches to this. I would say that I'm trying to maximize it in, in a different way than Jim is. What Let's say Jim has... 5,000 connections on, on LinkedIn. 7,000. Okay. So, so Jim has 7,000. I have, I have 30,000. I know. Okay? I know. So out of, and you maximize at 30,000. So out of my 30,000, maybe only half of them are industry decision makers or associated I agree. with, I agree with machine tools. Yep, yep, yep. So although those 15,000 are decision makers, or let's, let's even say that we're, we're matched evenly at 7,000, because that would be a more compelling argument, what have you, Whatever for, for what I'm trying to get at. Sure. So let's say that 23,000 of mine aren't. If those individuals are liking and commenting on my posts, LinkedIn is then going to make it go more viral yes. so that it's going to reach the same people. Well, it's going to reach more people. So Right. So, and, and, if, and if the people who are liking and commenting, so there's kind of two sides. Let me jump in for a second and get r- real nerdy. So you're serving your platform as much as you're serving your audience. Right. Okay. Because the, okay. the platform doesn't know. You know, LinkedIn is a freaking like software thing. It's a robot, right? It is. So it doesn't know if if it's really engaging or relevant to the industry or not. All it knows is what kind of engagement did that post receive. Yes. So to Ted's point, if if there's a lot of likes and a lot of comments on a post, LinkedIn thinks, "Wow, that must it's be the drive. most interesting, most relevant post out there." Right. Therefore, I'm going to show it to more people. Right. That's You're a- absolutely right. And this is only a theory, but based on looking at the evidence quite a bit, everybody's feed is differently on LinkedIn. And I I can't say that I'm inequivocally correct about this, but if you talk about Joe Blow and John Doe, their feeds are what they like and comment on, and everyone's feed is different. So it doesn't matter. It matters who my connections are because those are the people that are going to see my posts more. But the people that like and comment on my stuff that are machine tool industry, my feeds are going to keep coming back into theirs more. So it doesn't penalize me to have people outside of my industry liking and commenting on my posts. And that's why if I try to beat people over the head nonstop with our product and services, which we do, it can have a negative effect to where I've heard people in the industry use the term tone deaf. If you just say, you know, Motor City Spindle, Motor City Spindle, Motor City Spindle, people are going to, they're, they're going to quit seeing you. I don't know if you ever noticed, I, I noticed this in college. You hang your favorite poster on the on the stairs where, where, where you go down and it takes a left I mean turn, the Farrah, right? The Farrah Fawcett the poster? The Farrah Fawcett poster. Okay. We all had it, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Everybody loves that. After you've lived in that house for a few months, you don't even see that poster exactly. anymore. But okay. every new visitor that comes into your house sees it and they go, oh, wow, that, I love Farrah Fawcett. And you're right. like, I didn't even know it was there anymore. So pe- people get tone deaf and they, so. You gotta mix, and, and then in. if the, and if they if, if they don't like it, for, let's say they hate Farrah Fawcett or they're so sick of Farrah Fawcett, then they block. I think that's where you're saying, like, if you give them so much of the same thing to where it gets annoying, they can block you, and then they'll never see. It you. almost it almost like you post a lot of renders on LinkedIn, and if you if you're always posting 
renders all the time. People don't see the difference between the standard tombstone and the five axis tombstone. They just see a render and they keep scrolling. You yeah. know, and you need to change it up a little bit. Yeah. You know, that's whether a, that's that the background color or just whatever else it is from yeah. an artistic standpoint, you start see, becoming the good a little news toned for to me it. is they're all different. They're all different applications. Right, people right. love my renders. Right. But sometimes don't go after they might my not renders. see that. So what I would say to that is I think a lot of people would agree variety is the spice of life, right? So we got to mix it up. And we've done a lot of case studies. We've done a lot of studying. We we track our leads. And if we post just all product specific all day long, it doesn't seem to generate as many leads and it's not sustainable. People are going to get tone deaf. And if we do just puppy dogs, ice cream and, and, and bacon, stuff that everybody loves, but it's not, it has nothing to do with my product, people aren't going to take us seriously or want to pay attention either. So how do you try to get consistent views that hit your target audience as much as possible? Because to be honest with you, this is a free platform for the most part. Right. You know, years ago, I spent money to advertise on LinkedIn. Now I don't spend any money outside of what my employees do, but my employees are doing it part-time here and there. Yeah. Everyone and, thinks, man, they must spend a ton of time. It doesn't take that much time really. It, it doesn't. If you do things like a lot of the stuff that, that we create and the stuff that are my posts, I come up with, I enjoy doing it. It's kind of a hobby of mine. I, I see something, I'm, if I'm driving down the expressway and I see Mark and I go, that's awesome. And in, I'm not kidding you, in half a second, I'm like, I can do that with a spindle and I can make that funny. I like doing it. I, I want to work more with CNC machine tool dealers, right? So as soon as I saw a dealer, I'm like, Blackjack. I love blackjack. I'm going to make a post that, that has something to do with, with dealers and blackjack because people identify with it. They like it. And it's not just spindles, but somebody's got a Motor City shirt on that, that has our logo. I got the logo in the upper in the upper corner. Maybe I put a spindle in the background, but I'm trying to attract people in different ways. So and, there's a reason why, like say, so one of your salespeople might do a post from their office one day and then the next day they're doing a post from the beach. There's a rationale behind the way you do that. Yeah, I mean, if, if they're doing something about the beach, I, I don't not know. Not about how, the beach, but from the beach. You know, it's he's a just different saying from like a non-work location. Right. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. There's generally trying to be some form of a rationale for what we're doing. We're trying to uh, attract an audience and, and attract people that. Let's be honest. How many of us are are sitting at home watching TV now, and we're actually still looking at our phones? I'm on the sales trip. I took my daughters with me. We're having a great time. We're having. Lunch and and we order we order food and while we're waiting for it to come we're talking we're having a good time but we're also we're looking at our phones everybody's looking at their phones what are you guys looking at well for business individuals it's it's LinkedIn but it's also Instagram it's Facebook it's all these different social medias so if people see that advertising and they see that logo you're you're, you're creating branding now mm -hmm. you definitely want to do it in the most professional way possible and you definitely want to be technical and specific and, and project that image you want to protect and project, but you don't want to put people to sleep. And you don't want to do it every time. No, no. But the fact that we have five, six people every single day reaching out and we convert one of those every day of the week and we've been doing it and those numbers are going up, that's what I base the fact that it's successful. Yeah. The, results, I, I the results are there. Yeah. You got to you got to sprinkle some carrots in with the cake. Well, absolutely. And, and, and the other thing that I'd say to, to a lot of people out there, and I think this is one of the most important things, is that as a salesman, you cannot knock on every door across the country. We we try to market predominantly to the United States. We, we love working all over the world. We love working with U.S. and Canada, excuse me, Mexico and Canada, but the United States predominantly, border issues, what have you. But if you put these people to sleep, it, it's not going to work. But number one, number two, 
There's a lot of people we work with that only have one CNC machine, five CNC machines, 10 CNC machines. Sorry, if you have a broken spindle and you call me, I'm probably going to see you, come see you, or I'm going to send one of my sales managers out to come see you. But if you want me to jump on an airplane and go see you in Los Angeles or Austin, Texas or Seattle, and you got five machines, sorry, it's, it's not going to happen. But if I can have you call me from all over the country and I can reach you by just doing something that I can do five, 10 minutes a day or spend a couple hours on, on a Saturday or at midnight when I can't sleep to me, that that's pure gold Mm -hmm. and we sell millions doing it. So that's, yeah. One of the things that we were getting at earlier is like, so what you're looking for in a salesperson and what I'm hearing is more than anything, you're looking for like the demand generation and the lead generation from your salespeople, because it sounds to me and tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like the people who actually get technical about like what's wrong with the spindle and how to fix it is you and Brian for the most part. Yes. So, so you're looking for your sales team to be more kind of bird dogging opportunities and be and like out there getting the brand out as much as possible and then receiving the interest and then right as quick as possible, getting it to the technical person. Right. So Going back to my intro, I worked for the Pope Corporation. They were founded in 1920. They went out of business in in 2003. They had four repair facilities across the country. I worked for another independent third party that has four spindle repair facilities across the country. I've worked with dozens and dozens of sales individuals. I have not worked with a lot of people that understand spindles and can sell spindles. And I've been doing it for 22 years. Right. So, yeah, it's kind of like a whole niche system inside of another niche system. Not a lot of people know enough about machine tools either. There's, there's nothing special Brian Burns and I do to get sales in the door other than being able to answer the technical questions customers have about why spindles fail, how we rebuild it, how we test it, and how we can guarantee it. And if I can get people... To, to call me five, 10 times a day, we're, we're going to generate a lot of business. I absolutely love making sales calls. I love traveling the country. COVID has been awful in, in that capacity. It's it's nice that, you know, we all talked about this. We're starting to make more and more sales calls. We are doing the stuff in the parking lots and, and doing different things we have to do to make it happen. But it's just a difficult process. You know, when, when you're rebuilding spindles for half million, million dollar machines, people got to have a trust factor in order to want to work with you. So lead generation is really critical. If, if I could touch on one other thing, right now, I'm trying to attract a lot of distributors who sell machine tools or people like Jason's company that's selling tooling, people who know and people that have relationships. If you have those relationships, people don't understand this. They, they think I say it tongue in cheek or I say it jokingly or that I don't fully mean it. I want people to represent us and I don't want people to sell our spindle repair services. I, I want you to try but you're not going to be successful doing it. And that's that's a that's a huge statement but So you just want them to connect you with the the relationship is what you're looking for. Not for someone to try to sell what you do. 100%. Gotcha. I, I, I can have more success talking to a guy for five to 10 minutes on the phone versus somebody else who's known a guy for 10 years going out and making that sales call. People ask us all the time to mail out brochures to do whatever. And it's like, I literally, <laughs> I'll just be me and say it. I could just throw the stuff in the garbage and not even mail it because right. it just doesn't lead doesn't, to results. Yeah. But Ted, we were going long already and there's still Sorry. so much more that I want to ask Please. you. And I 100% agree with everything you you said about social media, it's all about branding and it's all about brand perception and brand image. Yes, it's all about lead generation, right? Do you think that you could erroneously be creating a brand perception about Motor City Spindles that you don't necessarily want to, to gain? Do you know what I mean? I believe I understand the question and it's, it's always a conscious thought 
But the fact that seven years ago we didn't no, exist. No, I, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, I agree. I, well, you can agree, but you ask a question, so I'm just yeah, answering yeah. it. Seven years ago, I didn't exist. Now I own the the largest spindle independent spindle remanufacturing facility in the country. And during COVID, we're up and, and everybody else is down. So, you know, once that happens, I'll, I'll take a look at it. And the feedback, everybody has a fear and everybody has a fear to pick up the phone and make sales calls. People have a fear to post. People have a fear to do things. And in my thing, going back to combined insurance that I worked for, you know, everything's about do it now. It's about crushing timidity and fear. And when the positive outweighs the negative a thousand to one, that's where I'm going to take that type of input. And that's where I'm going to, I'm going to put my time, money and resources into. If you look at what we're doing right now, we're trying to get much more technical. We're, we're trying to change things. It's just such, it's, it's like turning a huge ship around yes. and it's, and it's a process, but we're, we're having such success with it that, that I'm going to keep doing, what you know, doing. like any great marketing program, you're constantly testing and you're looking at what works and what doesn't. And so you have built this big audience and you constantly reach them and then it generates business opportunities. So it's like at the end of the day, what's the function of marketing? But I'm sure you're aware of like some of the negative feedback you might get on, oh, they're, they're just posting some stupid motivational crap, has nothing to do with the industry. I'm sure you've heard that. You, this can't be the first time that anyone's ever brought that up. I don't know how to really absorb that comment because you guys are asking it. I, I know it exists, but I don't really ever hear it from anybody directly. I hear people talking about people talk about it, but I don't but ever no hear one ever anybody says talking about it. Yeah, people yeah, yeah. talk about it yeah. a lot. So we're telling you that, and that's why we're here. We're, we're trying to open dialogue, open communication, and, and that's the word among manufacturing people. So, it's just, yeah, yeah, maybe it's, maybe it's empty or something, but at the end of the day, it's a marketing program. It, at the end of the day, it's a, and I and, get and that you're so much. It, and for you, it's working. And I don't think that there's anything inherently wrong with what you're doing. When anybody is having a lot of success, there's always bound to be haters. Yes, yes. You know what I mean? Look at anyone who's successful. There's haters who are hating on how they get there. And maybe that wouldn't be how they got there. I certainly have a different approach to my social media. But, dude, I'd be lying if I said I got a brand new lead or a new sale from social oh, God, media every day. That's, well, that's impressive. So that's impressive. I, so the worst thing I could do is just be a hater and be like, oh, look at the stupid crap that they're doing. Right. I, I do know that part of it, there, there's always going to be reality in, in anything that anybody says. But I can tell you that, you know, talking to a lot of our vendors and talking to the people in the spindle repair business that we buy from, specifically bearing vendors, Right. We all buy from the same people. I hear on a frequent basis from some of the people I buy from that, you know, we're really upsetting some people out there. We're taking a lot of market share. Won't name any names, but I, you know, I, I know an outfit we used to work for. We've taken considerable market share from the OEMs. We're taking a lot of food off their plate mm -hmm. and we're talking about how they're high priced. Their quality is not better than ours. So that's where some of that stuff comes from. If you want to talk about, you know, the motivational aspect, I mentioned combined insurance. I mentioned working for, a, for an insurance company. The best-selling book of all time was written by Napoleon Hill called Think and Grow Rich. Yep. The gentleman who started combined insurance, his name was W. Clement Stone. He wrote the foreword to that book. Sure. I never met him. He, he died either. I've heard, of, I've heard of the whole Napoleon Hill thing. It's kind of like that law of attraction type stuff, right? Absolutely. So I've literally read that book. I've, I've lost count. I've read that book somewhere between 50 and 100 times. And I, I live it. I believe it. I've written goals 
and five five year business plans, and I've written things in the in the margins of those books that I didn't even know that were possible. And to look back five years, 10 years, 15 years later and see those materialize and see those happen. That's why I talk about PMA, positive mental attitude. Yep. I mm-hmm. talk about do it now. I talk about crushing timidity and fear. I talk about sales, a goal without without a deadline is just a wish. Love it, yeah. We believe that stuff. And we're not a perfect company. We make mistakes, but I do think that it's that attitude that we can get better every year, every day. We can attract more positive people and fire toxic people and change things is, is what makes us great at what we do. We're, we're, we're in a very challenging market and a very challenging workspace. And, and we're, we're trying to work with billion-dollar corporations that are, that are trying to trust their million-dollar machine tools almost exclusively to the manufacturers. Yeah. So, and that's what I want to talk about too, please. because I, I love talking about marketing. I could talk about this all day please. long. Let's talk technical. So I've got a machine shop. I've got 10 CNC machines. I've been on the shop floor for 40 years. I know the sounds coming from those machine tools. I can tell when they're running the end mill at the wrong speed. I can tell immediately when a carbide insert gets broken, their shell mill. I, I can hear those things and I react to them because I hear them. How do I know if my spindle's ready to go? And how do, how do I prepare for my spindle to go down? And what are the, what are the signs that my spindle is ready to pop? So when you're starting to see problems with your machine tool spindle, you're going to see obvious telltale signs. You're going to see part quality finish. Yep. You're going to see temperature from your spindle. You're going to see vibration. You're going to hear it. You're going to have different things going on with your machine tool. So anybody that's running machine tools for a long time is going to know these telltale signs, but they're also going to know they could be getting, for a lack of better term, to kind of use a medical term in, in mm-hmm. COVID here, right? A false positive. Sure. You're not going to know. Is right. it a ball screw? Right. If you're running a, a vertical or a horizontal machining center, is it the drive motor? Where's it coming from? Let me stop you for a second because I want a clarifying question. You're like, you, you might see temperature. Do you, do you actually see like smoke coming out of the no, spindle? No, 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 or do you, no. You're gonna, it, you're gonna, do you feel well, it? Like you're going to feel it, but you can also measure it off of your thermistors on your machining centers that are built-in sensors to your spindles. Sure, and they're sure. going to give you faulting errors and you can let them the spindle run down to ambient temperature and then and then you can fire the machine tool back up but and, and you'll get a fault on your screen on your controls that'll say hey absolutely you got a temperature issue. so the answer is doing vibration analysis we own several vibration analyzers we travel the country doing vibration analysis some of the marketing that you'll see that, that we've been doing recently is talking about doing vibration readings one of the things that our lead generation has done is, is get people to call us. And Brian Burns, once again, bringing him up, he mentioned, I can't tell you how often people tell us they don't know if it's a spindle or not. So now, because it's so difficult to set appointments in COVID, I'm just going to run out and offer to do vibration analysis free of charge. So we're doing that more and more. We're the small guys. We're the guys stealing the market share, but, but we're the guys that it's difficult to get a Mazak spindle away from Mazak, a Mag away from Mag, a Makino away from Makino, you know, Mori away from Mori. So, so we'll come out and most people don't understand this, but the technology, the software and the hardware is so sophisticated these days that we literally put an accelerometer on the exterior of your spindle. You guys close the door, you hit the button, you run it up to maximum RPM, and it's literally like taking a screenshot on your laptop or your cell phone, and, and you instantly have vibration signatures. And we measure it in acceleration and velocity. That's going to tell us the overall health of your spindle bearings. It's going to tell us whether your spindle's out of balance or not. Mm-hmm. So so we're going to get great diagnostic information, but we're also going to get information that's going to allow us to 
correct the spindle. Sometimes in the field, if it's balanced, we actually have portable balancing equipment. We can come out and check it out. With some of our partners, we have similar different ways of, of testing spindles. For example, you know, draw bars, we can come out and check pull force retention. These are all things. With that, his odd Jacob power check too. We do buy from advanced. <laughs> um, they're awesome. Um, so they sell, us our, they sell us our gauging. They sell us our parts. They do a phenomenal job. So we can go out in the field and do a lot of this stuff. So I just wrote a blog on it. You know, is it, is it the spindle or is it bull? When well, to we, pull we, it, when to not. I would see like, you know, I would know if something's happening if my Z isn't mm-hmm. repeating mm-hmm. or if micro finish is a really telltale sign right away. You're going to see a lot of swirls in your, in, in, on a finish pass, right? And sound, the sound of the spindle when it's ready to go does start making some odd noises. It's not like a fresh new spindle on a brand new CNC machine, right? You know what would be great is if you actually recorded the difference. You know, here's a here's what it sounds like with a perfect spindle. And here's, I, I know there's a yeah. hundred different sounds out there, but you know how when, when you got a good cut, you can hear it. When you got a bad cut, you can hear it. 100%. Yeah, I, I know I can. Can you hear the difference when you're not cutting? Absolutely. Oh, my, oh God, my God, yes. That's I what have, I want to hear. Yes. I have been... I have been maybe as far as a hundred feet away from a machine and the guy's like, Boom, well, we're, the machine's over here and I just want to know if the spindle's bad. I'm like, are you kidding me? Okay. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I can tell from here. He's like, how can you tell? I'm like, are, are you kidding me? It's like a dog whistle. Yeah. He's got it down. Okay. Well, and, and, and you can feel it when you can feel oh, it yeah. in your the feet. Floor, the floor, <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh my come God. on guys. So this is what we analyze this. We hear it. We know it's going to happen soon. Yes. I got to shut down my production. We got to get you in. We got to get it repaired. What's the lead time? How long am I going to be down? Because that's that's costing money, right? Absolutely. What is the typical downtime to get that spindle out and repaired and back in to fully operational? Every single week we do repairs in one to two days, but the work scope of the spindle and the complexity of the spindle is always going to dramatically affect. It's one of those, it depends, of course, right? It depends, but I'll tell you this right now. Yeah, um, yeah. Analyzing the data, analyzing what we're doing, turning center spindles, piece of cake. I got eight guys building full time in a in a, in a five thousand square foot spindle room. These don't have drawbars. They don't. They're not that complicated. Even the motorized units, the the big units, you know, hundred pounds, five hundred pounds, two thousand pound turning center spindles. We turn those around in days all the time. We got a machine shop. If we've got to requalify bearing journals, housing bores, pilot IDs, whatever the surface is, we can do that quickly. When you're getting into your more high end European style machine tools yep. that are buying predominantly Kessler, Weiss, GMN, German spindles. Your lead times are typically going to be a week in an emergency situation. And, and unfortunately, frequently, you're going to be looking at two weeks. Now, pre-COVID, nobody could tolerate those types of lead times. Now, they can look at that. If they're looking at saving $10,000, $20,000 versus going back to the manufacturer, that's where a recession like this can actually help small companies like sure. ourselves. But it's difficult. And the, the problem is... A lot of people ask me to, to quote spindles without seeing them, and we do it every single day. We do it based on history. What I've done that I feel works really, really well is I give people a standardized price based on standardized work scope. Everybody and everybody, if, if they're listening to this podcast and they got a bad spindle, they're going to say, well, I only know it's the bearings. Well, guess what? It's not. 
mm-hmm. and they think it is, and everybody wants it done fast. But as soon as it's not done right, and as soon as you install it back into the machine tool and it doesn't work, and then you got to pay to remove it or pay your guys to remove it, and then you got to ship it back to whomever it is across the country, they got to fix it. Then you got to ship it back. There's the old saying, yeah. there's never enough time to do it right, but there's always time enough to do it again. Yeah. That's where it can take a few extra days and it, and it can be a little bit more difficult. But a guy I used to work for used to always say, I, I can't quote your spindle without popping the hood. It's like it's like quoting an engine without taking a look at it. Sure. It's well, like that's me true. quoting a job without looking at the print. Well, hold on for a second. I agree to what you're saying, but if we're talking about a specific machine tool that I do all day long that I've already done a hundred of, I can't tell you what's wrong with it. But I can tell you if I'm going to replace the bearings, O-rings, and seals, reassemble it, rebalance it, retest run it, that's what this is going to cost. If I know that it's a 30-horsepower motor, I know what that 30-horsepower motor is going to cost. If I got to rebuild a gripper, I know what the Belleville washers cost. I know what it's going to cost to buy the gripper assembly from Nick. I know what it's going to cost to do all that parts and labor because I've done it hundreds of times. And if I haven't done it hundreds of times, you shouldn't trust me to do it. It's going to be one of these five things, and these five things will cost one of these five prices, and so you can still get them a quote. So it's, it's, it's a la carte. If huh. you go out to a, to, to a decent steakhouse and, and you want a steak dinner, you know what that steak dinner is going to cost. But if you want a salad, if you want Give ice me the cream. Pom- I want the pom fritz well, <laughs> you know, and a glass of Cabernet. If you want all these additional <laughs> items that it's going to cost to repair your spindle and do it right, that's what it's going to cost. So what we do is we, we line item it to try and help. Sure. Last question, because I know we're going long here yep. and I appreciate all this information you've been giving us. What can we do as machinists to create a little bit more longevity in our spindles. What are some good machining practices we can do in order to get a little bit more life out of our spindles? Well, if you're running machining center spindles, and if you're running anything with through-tool coolant, following the recommendations of the OEMs and actually replacing your rotary unions is is critical. Mm -hmm. Doing in-house vibration analysis is important because if your spindles are getting near high thresholds, if they're getting near failure, it's it's critical for you to to pull them out of production before they lock up. You're not going to save substantial money by pulling a spindle significantly earlier than another unless it locks up. Once it locks up, then then you're looking at at, at a lot of time and issues. But just just doing your checks, um, measuring the temperatures on your spindles, if you can afford to buy vibration analysis equipment and measure your own spindles, I highly, highly recommend that. If you need help with that, we sell it, or I can just point you in the right direction. I'm not big on selling vibration equipment. But doing those things is really critical. And if, you, if you're hearing it, if you're feeling it, or if you're seeing it, whether it's vibration, temperature, or Microfinish, surface finish, yeah. yep, then, then you got to get that spindle out. And oh. tolerance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I guess what I'm hearing is like, if you see the problems and you let it continue, you could yes. have a way bigger disaster than you if could. you get it out right away. Yes. I've shot myself in the foot several times. I get called in by, by big manufacturers and asked to put together a huge PM program and we love doing it. And I'm, I'm still going to say it today because I'm not in front of anybody specific, but if you're looking to put together a big preventative maintenance program, but you're not going to follow the data you get and you're not going (laughs) to follow the telltale signs that your spindle's consistently running at 120, 130, 140 degrees, then it it doesn't matter. Consciousness doesn't do anything if you don't do anything with it. Mm -hmm. Follow the obvious signs. Mm -hmm. Do what's smart. So, Ted, you know, a lot of people say, okay, Motor City, they share tons of content and maybe it's not all relevant to get back to the marketing stuff. But I was reading your blog the other day. And okay. I was actually spent a bunch of time reading it because I 
you were equipping me, you were teaching me some things. And you just had a post about the difference between Japanese and German spindles. Mm-hmm. We all know, like, most of the machine tools come from Japan or Germany. And you're talking about some of the differences. Can you share with us, like, kind of, what's your feeling? When it's a Japanese spindle, it's going to be like this. When it's a German spindle, it's going to be like that. And do you have a preference? I definitely have a preference. We've hired several individuals uh, from Kessler USA. They're, they're the largest spindle manufacturer in the world. They are the number one spindle manufacturer in the world because they go into so many different European machine tools, mm-hmm. especially German machine tools, but, but all over Europe. So when, when you're talking about European machine tools, you're not exclusively, but you're predominantly talking about German spindles that are made by separate entities. They're, they're made by, by spindle OEMs that yeah, then Kessler, turn, Weiss, Fisher. Yep. 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 And then when you're talking about the Japanese, the Japanese predominantly manufacture their own spindles in-house. Another parallel that is not exclusively true, of course, but the Europeans typically use Siemens and the Japanese almost exclusively use Fanuc. From the reliability of the machine tools, from what our guys feel, but based on the feedback we get from customers, we just feel that our customers have more reliability, have longer spindle life, and have more sustainability with their machine tools that are that are Japanese. Mm-hmm. I, I love Japanese machine tools. Growing up in the machine tool business throughout my 20s and 30s, you know, I, I used to have guys pound their, their their fists on the desk saying, you can't repair my spindle. It's motorized. You can't repair my spindle. It's, it's Japanese. And nowadays, people are doing the exact same thing, but they understand that the Japanese spindles are a lot easier to rebuild. Now they're saying it uh, about the German machine tool spindles. Oh, I thought you were going to say that the German spindles are better. <laughs> that's not what he's saying. No. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'm, that's yeah. why I'm surprised. When I look at the reliability, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. When I look at the reliability, when I look at the 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 failure rates, and when I look at the problems they have with the with the encoders and the sensors, I just don't feel that they're as reliable. That that is my opinion. But if you talk to most spindle rebuilders out there. They're going to agree with you. I don't want to hurt myself and my market share by, by, by sounding like, like, like we're not a great German spindle rebuilder because we are. I go out and I hire the top guys from the German manufacturers, from the machine tool manufacturers, and, and, and I get them to work for me. But I, I'm just telling you, if, if you look at whoever builds or remanufactures those spindles, those failure rates are significant. So they do you happen- think it's because like the, the OEM in Japan controls the entire machine, including the spindle, whereas in Germany, as you mentioned, there's spindle companies and then they have to plug that into whatever the Grobe or the, the German machine tool OEM is? Do, do you think because it's all contained under one umbrella in Japan, that's what makes it more reliable? Or do you just not know what makes it more reliable? I don't have a great answer for you. I, I just feel like the Japanese machine tools, for the most part, are real more more robust. They're just a, a better built piece of equipment. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Everyone probably, if you would have given that test question, we would have thought people would have said, oh, German, German quality, no, German No, I, I was going to err so. on Japan, Japanese. Yeah. Well, interesting. Well, it's, it's definitely the marketing trend. Um, yeah. More people are buying... German machine tools, being from the Motor City, working a lot with the big three, I see, I would say, you know, 10 to 1 German machine tools being bought over Japanese. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, my main takeaway is, look, you got to be different to to have a brand that stands out. And then you got to have a strategy and you have to collect data. And so... There's not a lot of companies who go to market and have the marketing strategy of Motor City. And the success. And there's not a lot of companies who have that success. So for all the haters out there, what I would ask, where's your strategy? Do you collect data and do you have better results? Because if you don't, maybe there's not a lot to say. 
what I would say to anybody that's, that's questioning Motor City or our marketing, I would just take a look at the fact that in the last seven years, we've gone from 2,000 to 4,000 to 8,000 to 25,000 square feet. We have a 5,000 square foot spindle room. We're growing every single year. I have more guys with 20 years experience rebuilding spindles than any other spindle company that is not an OEM in the country. And I'm just getting started. My goal is to repair $2 million in spindle repair a month. People laughed at that seven, eight years ago when we were only doing 100000 a month, but we're over halfway there. So I that's look great. forward to- That's great. And that's very uh, admirable. That's very yeah. admirable. Way to go get it, Ted. Yeah. So- at the end of the day, there's a there's another saying similar to ours, and it's if your spindle ain't turning, you ain't earning. That's right. I and if you're not making ships, then you're not making, making money. money. Bam. Bam. Metalworking Nation, listen up. Manufacturing is challenging. You need to think differently. The day-to-day whirlwind of urgencies, the pressure to grow, customer demands, workforce development, new machine tools and robots, the list goes on and on. It is possible to stay ahead of the game of manufacturing, but you can't do it alone. We're here to give you access to exclusive content from other leaders, as well as videos, blogs, show notes, and more resources designed to equip and inspire you on making chips. 